recently watched an episode of Song Exploder, the television version of the popular podcast where musicians take apart their songs and piece by piece tell the story of how they were made. It's fantastic, both the, the television version and the original podcast version. But this one particular episode on Netflix focused on hip-hop artist Ty Dolla Sign and the creation of one of his songs. As I'm recording this, I, I actually can't remember the name of the song, but that's not important for what I'm trying to say here. I, I watched it and was just completely inspired by the process he went through in the studio. He brought in other artists like Kendrick Lamar and Brandy to contribute to the song, and I found that so inspiring. These other incredible musicians came in and added their own magic. It all looks so perfectly collaborative and inspiring. It made me want to create in that way, build space where others can freely add to the work with what they do best. I want to make plays like this. I know theater and music production are not built the same, but damn, does that feel like an ideal to me. I've been thinking about it for months now. And it really came back to me in a strong way this week because I just returned from an arts festival where several of us were in residence working on various forms of art. There were dancers, a painter, an opera singer, actors, playwrights, directors. I witnessed incredible dancers collaborating with an amazing painter and a genius video designer, and I badly wanted to be part of what they were doing because it all just looked like my artistic ideal. As I drove home, glistening with inspiration from my time with these artists, I was thinking about that Ty Dollar Sign episode, and it occurred to me that I have actually done this before. One of my earliest experiences in the theater was working on a production with something like two dozen collaborators, writers, filmmakers, musicians, actors. It was the brainchild of somebody in a theater company I was part of. She had this incredible idea to bring together theater artists and some from outside the theater to create a performance piece. Well, performance piece. It was, it was a play, like a play, but not confined by what we imagine a play to be. It was the magic of collaboration. All these talented people came together to create something. That experience, I think, implanted on my DNA. I think it was like my ideal and I've been chasing that experience ever since. I think it was that experience from all those years ago that makes me want to hold on to the other artists I meet who inspire me. I want to bring them into my process and make our process, collaborate, make things with them. I said a while back in this space that what moves me in theater is being part of a team. I traced it back to being on the football team back when I was a kid. The football team for me today includes all these amazing people I meet. Starting with Sally who dreamed up that great theater piece we all created together. And all the musicians and writers and dancers and artists and designers and filmmakers I've crossed paths with since over the years. I don't really know where I'm going with all this. I think maybe this is a call to others who think of creation like I do, who can watch Ty Dolla Sign build a song in the studio and be inspired to build a play in the same way. Doesn't that sound awesome? Let's do that. I'm talking to you. You know who you are. Hello, 
the Subtext Podcast. I am the host, Brian James Polak. This month, I am sharing a very special episode to me. Callie Kimball is a playwright I have known since the day I called myself a playwright for the first time. If you listened to my episode with Gary Garrison, you know exactly that moment I'm talking about. Callie and I became friends way back then, and we remain friends to this day. She is somebody I have relied on, both as a writer, reading my work and helping me be a better writer, but she's also been an important ear for me when I was going through some really tough times. I've wanted to talk to Callie since I started this podcast, and I stubbornly insisted on waiting until a time I could sit with her face to face. And that wasn't easy because she lives in Maine, and I have lived in many places very far from Maine over the years. But in July, I finally made it happen, and I couldn't have been happier to see my friend again after a long separation. But it also meant a lot to record her telling her story, which you'll hear has been pretty challenging for her in recent years. If you like what you hear on the subtext, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and share with the folks in your life who might like it too. And if you're on the socials, you can find us out there on most of the popular ones, although I neither tick nor talk. And there are many excellent episodes in our archives. Dive in and listen to the something like 80 geniuses I've spoken to over the years. Okay, Callie Kimball is an award-winning playwright with a dedicated track record of advocating for underrepresented voices. She earned her MFA under Tina Howe at Hunter College, where she won the Rita and Burton Goldberg Playwriting Award two years in a row. Her plays have been produced and developed by theaters, colleges, and festivals all over the country. She's an affiliate artist at Portland Stage Company, an affiliate writer at Playwright Center, playwright-in-residence at Theater at Monmouth, and a former McDowell Fellow. McDowell Fellow. I should enunciate better. She won a Ludwig Vogelstein grant to research her play Sophonisba, which is a play I absolutely love. It won the Clowder Gold Prize and was a finalist for the O'Neill and a semifinalist for the Princess Grace Award. And it was included in the Kilroy's, ne- the Kilroy's 2016 list. Callie is one of my absolute favorite people in the world. We recorded this conversation in her apartment in Maine, July of 2022. And, uh, and originally I thought it was random. Yeah. A lot of people did. I was like, oh, Maine. Okay. Yeah. A lot of people like, what are you doing? You just graduated an MFA program. You're living in New York city and you're what? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, but you grew up here. I did till I was nine. So, so I was not born here, which means I will always be what they call from away. Uh, That's what they say in Maine. It's what they say in Maine. And it doesn't matter that my family goes back to the 1600s, no lie. They were like lobstermen, carpenters, lumber, yard people, whatever they are, sawyers, I guess. And um, so my mom's side of the family was from Maine. And so if I stop and talk to somebody long enough, oftentimes it'll come out that we're like fifth cousins or something. (laughs) But that said, I have a very small family. Like we didn't. Because we moved around a lot after I was nine. You know, my parents divorced when I was four. My mom was raising me. 
and we moved and I, I went to 12 schools by the time I graduated high school. So I don't have a sense of a large extended family here, but enough, enough that exists, that it's meaningful. And what I did learn was the stories, like stories of a lot of them women in our family who did remarkable, I mean, I don't mean to say they were like, you know, inventors or anything like that, but they were farmers who had to raise entire families because, um, you know, the one story, Annie Cole Dixon raised her family after her husband had his leg amputated in the barn after a farming accident, and he didn't survive that surgery. Um, and, you know, another one where we had family who fought in the Civil War, and one of them was in Andersonville, and they thought he, they had heard that he had died in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you know anything about Andersonville, it was, it was a terrible place to be. Many people died there. And then, like, two years later, he comes walking up over the hill. You know, he walked from Andersonville to Maine. So stories like that were always, they were the only family stories I knew. And my mother kept them going for me. And so these people always seemed larger than life. There was one really tall guy who, who I guess he had a lumber yard and he had six fingers on each hand. You know, I don't even know. Is that inbreeding? <laughs> That's nothing probably to be proud of. But these were characters, you know. And I think if anything, if I have a storytelling impulse, it's probably from all of those stories that mm -hmm. I grew up with. And so I always felt this pull because Maine was the place, you know, we moved here when I was two, I think. So it's the place where I started, you know, drunkenly walking around the world as a stumbling toddler and discovering um, nature. And I mean, it's a magical place if you're a kid. It's just all, you know, all nature all the time, outdoors, fishing, um, you know, then sledding in the winter and snowball fights and snow forts and leaf piles. And, you know, you hit all the four seasons, you hit the monarch butterflies, you know, just all of these wonderful things to experience as a kid. Um, and then we moved to Massachusetts. <laughs> I like how by the end of the word Massachusetts, like there's so much tone here. Yeah. yeah. So I did not realize that the rest of the world was not like Maine. And mm. I've always wanted to come back to recapture that. I loved living in New York City, like loved it. I was not one of those people who uh, who was like, oh, I've had it with New York. I, I can't deal with it. I have to get away from this place. I loved it. I just did not want to live the rest of my life in a one-room studio apartment with not a proper kitchen, you know? So you said you said 12 schools mm -hmm. in 12 school years. Yeah. What was What was prompting all of the moves? Do you know? Yeah. So it was just my mom and I, and she worked in retail and was trying very hard to get us a better quality of life. Every every move was either a promotion or a transfer within a company, or she was jumping to another company to get more salary. Um, when I was very little and my father left, he took the car. And... Uh, so, you know, here she was with a four-year-old and no mode of transportation, and we were selling Avon on her bike. She'd, you know, put me in the little basket on the back. And so she was just kind of 
trying to always improve our life like we were on welfare because that was just the reality so Mm -hmm. um and there's really no family to like take us in or help us because everybody was struggling um so so it was always the impulse was always that um and she had actually been raised by a single mom as well uh, and my grandmother was a traveling nurse. And so my mom had to move every time that my grandmother got a new assignment. So in a way, like, I think that rhythm of moving, I think it wasn't a big deal to my mom. And she didn't maybe realize that it was kind of rough for me to always be starting over uh, and not have, mm-hmm. like, a large sense of th- friends, you know, just people to hang out with. It was... You know, because we'd move and then sometimes I did okay socially and sometimes I was very much, you know, on the outside looking in and couldn't couldn't figure it out, couldn't navigate the social nuances. So I think I was a late bloomer because of that, because like, you know, when you're a kid growing up, I think you have uh, you fall out with friends or whatever and you patch it up or you figure it out. We just moved. You know, we just mm. like would leave. So I never learned. There were certain skills I think I didn't really learn uh, till late in life. Uh, I, I think I relate to that a little bit. I mean, I didn't move as much, but we moved a lot. Uh, and the height of it was three different fourth grade classes. Whoa. We moved across the state of the, the we, we moved across southern New Hampshire. Wow. Uh, until we got to Keene. Oh, that's and, so disruptive. Uh, started fourth grade in one school, spent the middle part in another school, right in like right at that time. Yeah. And um I was already the like a mental mess and that like Yeah. And but like you were talking about with your mom, like my mom was like moving towards stability, right? Mm-hmm. Like like you don't know that though as a nine, ten year old. Yeah. Um like so like when you were like experiencing this at the time were you aware of like the lack of stability or were you like yay new place uh i i was just confused i did not you know i was i was my mother was very stressed and when i think now about like okay we were nine she was how old was she she was oh she was 29 Mm. and i think about myself at 29 if i had a kid and i'm trying to figure out like how to provide for that kid I would be stressed too I think um so I don't uh, you know did I have an awareness no it's only been with a lot of therapy Mm -hmm. that I've come to understand like what all that dynamic was and what it um you know and people are very fond of saying oh but you know it made you so strong and you're able to go into any situation I'm like eh it just kind of sucked. Like it was yeah. just hard. I moved in the middle of my senior year, you know, I mean, just, I never, you know, I don't want to I mean, cause obviously I have a lot of privilege, um, in many, many ways that I fully recognize, but it, it also was challenging. I think, especially because it was just she and I, like it was just her and I, we, you know, she didn't have anybody else to vent to. So she vented to me, you know, mm-hmm. And um, and I can't fault her. I don't want to I don't want this to sound like I'm, you know, faulting her because I know she did the very best she could and her intentions were really good. Um, But it was it definitely made me a writer because I was I was 
sad. I was confused. And I was trying to make sense of my world. So I wrote my first poem when I was seven. And it was a, a limerick about a pig named Clyde <laughs> who always lied. Ah, <laughs> all right. Um, all right. So I just started to try to like – for a long time, I thought, oh, I'm a, I'm a writer. That's what I am. And it's like, well, no, I think I became a writer because of the circumstances I was in. And I was trying to, like, find, like write a map for myself of how to navigate all of the chaos mm-hmm. that I was experiencing. So it was challenging. So you were writing poems from, mm-hmm. like, this early age. Mm-hmm. When did, uh, when did the, when did playwriting start to emerge? Yeah. Uh, so I was a poet through college, actually, and and I mentioned this because it sort of leads into theater, but I also was a ballet dancer from 9 to 13. Mm. So that was the performing, that was the stage, that was the audience, you know, all of that uh, meaning that I found with ballet, uh, which was not right for me. Ballet was not right for me, but it gave me a, a love of connecting to an audience so, yeah, so I was a poet in college. I mean, I was the student who asked my professors, like, I know you want a 20-page term paper, but can I write a 20-page narrative poem instead? <laughs> and they'd be like, uh, sure, have at it. And so I would, you know, I just uh, I just wanted to figure out, uh, I, I wrote formal poetry, I wrote random poetry, I, I, I wrote a lot of poems inspired by art artworks um because i was visually inspired i still am when i when i write plays a lot of times it's a visual image that Mm -hmm. i don't have words for Mm -hmm. yet so what was the question (laughs) where like where did uh playwriting oh yeah okay so so after college i became an administrative assistant because that's what you do when you're a poet like i mean i had friends who, who went to grad school but like that wasn't an option for me really um, and so I started working in corporate. Where were you living? Washington, D.C. So, uh, so, but I always missed performing. So I took a Shakespeare theater, had a, a classical acting intensive six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that. And I loved it. And so I, pref- so I was an actor for a while. And I think actors, is, it's a nice on-ramp into playwriting because you have to make the words r- real and true. And uh, I have a lot of respect for all of the actors who work on my plays. So, so, so I was an actor in D.C. And, you know, it's a vibrant theater community. And... I was getting called back for a lot of things and it would come down to me and one other person and then I would never get it. (laughs) So I was experiencing a ton of rejection. uh, And there was, okay, so I'll tell, this is a story that um, I used to not tell because it was so painful, but the way I became a playwright was that I was fired from playing Juliet. Do you know this story? No. (laughs) Okay. So I had been working with a classical theater company uh, in the D.C. area, and the artistic director was like, what's a role that you really, really want to do? I was like, well, I kind of want to do Julia before I'm too old. Okay, cool. So I don't even now remember the exact order of things, but he cast an 18-year-old 
and then it turned out she couldn't do it. So then he cast me. Meanwhile, he had made me audition, but not her. So I was already like butthurt about it. Mm-hmm. And so I remember saying something like, okay, I'll audition. I'll, I'll, I'll take the role. I was talking to like the producer. I'll take the role, but you know, I don't want to have to have meetings in his apartment anymore and this and that. I was trying to have a boundary. Right. But of course, when you have never had a boundary and then all of a sudden you try to have a boundary, you're really bad at it. <laughs> so I was kind of a pain in the ass, I think. Um, but he, so this artistic director, I don't know what it was. But there was just some weird vibe that we had that was toxic. And he wanted me to be really hit in the face as Juliet, like when her father, uh, it's like the closet. Oh, like a real step? Yep. Yeah, yeah, like, and it's a proscenium stage. We could have masked it a million ways. He wanted me to take a real hit to the face, and he wanted me to play one of the fighters in the opening and get thrown off the stage into collapsible folding chairs as part of the opening. And I was like, oh, I don't know that I feel great doing that. Like I had just recently been in a car accident and I'm like, oh, I think my neck, I don't think that's a great idea. Also just in general, like, hello. Yeah, like how aggressive is this? Yeah. This is very aggressive. Is this this person trying to actually hurt you? I think so. I don't know. I mean, it was weird. So I was trying to be really careful because I didn't want to lose the role. Um, so and it, it's funny because in rehearsal, the guy who played my dad did not want to hit me. And I think in hindsight, had I just kept my mouth shut, it probably would have gotten changed. Like he's he wasn't going to hit me because it just didn't feel right. It was just weird. So. So I get called into rehearsal early one day and this artistic director is there, the one who wants me to get thrown off the stage and hit in the face. And the producer's there. And they're like, we really feel that you taking this hit is is integral to the artistic vision of the play, something like that. So instantly in the moment, I called his bluff. I was like, okay, okay, I'll take it. I'll take the hit. And then they were like, Oh. oh, because what was following was, so we're going to go with somebody else. Yep. Oh. So I was like, okay, no problem. I'll take it. Th- no problem at all. And then they were like, well, we 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 can't let you do that. You've said your car accident. So I was like, oh, no, no, no. I'll sign a waiver. It's fine. Like, not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to lose this part. I was off book. Mm-hmm. We were like three weeks from opening. So they fired me. <laughs> And uh, they recast the 18-year-old, and my heart was broken, mm-hmm. as happens in theater. And I took all of that thwarted energy, and I wrote my first play. That's a very long answer to your very simple question, but that's how I wrote my first play. It was a 10-minute play for the Source Theater Festival in Washington, D.C., and I'll never forget sitting in that audience and hearing people laugh at my play. And I was like, this is amazing. So that's what started it. Were you at the time, because you were clearly like your impulse was to act, were you thinking, I'm going to write something that I can act in? No, I've never wanted to write for myself, ever. You were like, Drew, you like built a wall between these two things. Yeah. Did you continue, did you like give up acting and just move right into playwriting? Was there overlap? I wanted to be an actor. I was very bitter for a long time because I wanted to act so much. I loved it. Uh, But 
over time, playwriting was the door that kept opening. You know, I kept like writing short plays and then I wrote a monologue that was in an evening. And then I had a, my first full length play was commissioned and then that went well and got good press. And so that just kind of was easier, uh, remarkably, you know, as a playwright that, that just kind of worked. Whereas acting, I don't think I knew how to audition. I think I didn't know how to carry status in a room in a way that mm. made people want to work with me. I think I was kind of putting myself in a lower status spot energetically. That's fascinating. Well, you know, cause I think it comes down to that. Like who, who do people want to hang out with for, you know, six yeah. to eight weeks. Yeah. And I was too, like, I don't know if I was obsequious. I, I don't know what I was, but I don't think I managed that vibe successfully. I struggled with acting because I didn't know how to act. I, all I <laughs> well, knew, too, I knew probably. about memorizing lines and doing blocking. Yeah. But I did not, I didn't train. I just was like, got off book and did what the director told me to do. And because of, and then I did shows. And uh, I never really understood what I was doing. Yeah. And that's that's why I so like I, I'm listening to your your story and I'm just like, oh, mine's kind of parallel in a weird way because that drove me into writing uh, yeah. similarly. Yeah. But I really was like end point. It was like acting uh -huh. over, move on something else. Yeah. Oh, wait, what are you saying? Acting. Act I ended. I was you, like, you had a very definite immediately. Yeah. OK. Yeah. How long did you do it for acting? Yeah. Like basically my 20s. OK. Uh. I got into improv. That's right. And then did improv and then yeah. was not great at that. And then moved into theater, did theater for a few years, was not great at that. And then, but I needed something. I needed like that creative thing in my life. Yeah. So I was like, that's what I was seeking my entire, that entire decade was like, what's my creative thing? Right. Hit writing. It was like, ah, oh, this is it. Yeah. So that's kind of when I met you in 2007, right? When I was just, yeah, I was in the early stages. I, I think maybe, I think the, the first real, I wrote some short plays at that point. Uh, and then maybe wrote a full length or long one act to get into the Kennedy Center uh, intensive where, where we met. So I was like young and the, the, that, Attending that uh, intensive was so important because Gary Garrison, I'm not sure if you remember this, but the very first day when we're all meeting each other, he forced us to say that we are writers. Yeah. And I said it out loud for the first time, I'm a writer. And really, actually having the words form changed me in that in that moment it really had a huge profound effect on me yeah you were a great writer i remember i connected with you and kate tarker mm -hmm. have you kept in touch with kate i follow her on social media yeah. hi kate i hope to get you on the subtext yes. oh she would be great she would be great <laughs> yeah interview. for sure yeah no i remember i remember that was a great um yeah i had been writing plays for two years i think at mm -hmm. that point and uh and that that uh workshop was huge i mean it was i never thought i was going to go to grad school so that was kind of the closest i was going to get was taking all of these classes from all of these amazing teachers i have this fear i can't remember if we've talked about this but i've had this fear that i said something really inappropriate at our first meeting 
with Gary and everybody in the room. Uh, <laughs> have I, <laughs> I have no memory okay, okay. of it. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know, but I feel convinced that this happened where we were all having a very serious playwright meeting for the first time around a conference table. And I said, I don't know what possessed me because I don't normally talk like this, but I think I said, who do I have to blow to get a bathroom break? (laughs) (laughs) Who says that to a bunch of strangers? And nobody laughed. What? I think that happened. And so, no, it's not ringing a bell. Or maybe it just... I, I thought it 100% so hard. would have died <laughs> laughing. I feel like said that. Gary stopped and just collected himself and said, let's take five. I feel like that happened. But if, if you don't remember that, I don't remember maybe it, but I just thought it really, really hard at the time. But you know, the <laughs> theme of, uh, or, or maybe it's a motif of memory is, is going to weave through our entire conversation <laughs> And will be clear to anybody listening in a little bit. But um, something I learned about memory in recent years is that uh, we don't experience events the same way. You know, I talk a lot about how uh, I don't have a strong memory. I have a very strong emotional memory. Mm -hmm. I don't have a strong episodic memory. I don't have good Mm -hmm. recall. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd have to watch a movie five times before I could like pull those big lines out that everybody else can just be like, remember when so-and-so said blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I can't do that. Um, So in a thing like if I was you, I would a hundred percent remember that. Yeah. Uh, But I wasn't. And even if yeah. I was there, like I still it hit me in a different yeah. way, you know, and it, it, it didn't have the impact. And that's that's what I'm realizing as far as my memory is concerned. Yeah. Something needs to uh, impact me in a really specific way for me to like hold on to it. Don't ask Gary that question when you interview him, though. I don't think he'd appreciate it. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I've. this is who I am is though I've beat myself up about it. This theoretical thing that may have not even happened for 15 years. You know, mm-hmm. I'm like mortified because it was inappropriate. You know, it's just one of those moments where you think you're going to be hilarious and the room is silent. Oh, you know, <laughs> you know, we are alike in this way. I had an awkward handshake, hug, miscommunication <laughs> about. 13 years ago <laughs> that I cannot shake. Oh. I, like I don't interact with this person. I never see this person anymore, but yeah. we're at a party. I went for the handshake. They went for the hug. Neither one of us gave up on what we were oh. doing. And it was the most awkward moment. Oh, and it was 13 years ago. And they don't remember. They don't care. They don't know. No. They're not talking about this. I no. can't. Like, it pops into my head. Oh, we're weekly. both neurotic. Yes. We're both completely neurotic. That's why we're friends. Yeah. These weird interactions and moments like are are unshakable. Yeah. To me. I think everybody has them though, right? We all have these moments that just were mortified by something that happened. It's what makes us human. I think some people have that <laughs> magic ability to let things roll mm-hmm. off their bag and mm-hmm. not care. And I wish I had that. Yeah. I think people who grew up being looked at with loving eyes Mm. you know just just sort of felt accepted every room they walked in they felt welcome and wanted 
in a way that got really dark. But like, I do think that that does something to you. It sets you up for a certain ease, a certain social ease later in life. So is that something you feel or felt walking into a room not wanted? Correct. Yeah. Do you still feel that? No, 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 no. I, because I sort of, I, I, I reparented myself in some way. Like I, I, I did enough therapy to understand that the things I had come to believe about myself or the way relationships are and work were very, very flawed and faulty. And so I worked very hard. I have a whole shelf of self-help books here um, that, that I, I I just learned that there are many different ways to move through the world. And if you sort of actually walk into a room with, the energy of like I'm supposed to be here and I'm gonna make a friend I just don't know that person yet and sometimes it doesn't work mm. and you just um, leave quickly mm -hmm. <laughs> but oftentimes because a lot of people are also feeling nervous in social situations that if you can approach people with a smile and a question and confidence that that it it it's welcome more often than not mm. So, yeah, I learned to give that to myself and then to, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to end that thought, but, yeah. but I, I just relearned, I just retaught myself basic human functioning. <laughs> uh, so we, so we met at this Kennedy Center playwriting intensive all those years ago. And I was just talking about how it was a really profound and important moment in my life because it's what grounded me in being a playwright and really from that moment forward that was in the summer of 2007 um i identified as a playwright and never never looked back was was it did you have a similar like did it was it a meaningful experience for you too it was because in the fall so that was the summer of 2007 and in the fall of 2006 i had gone to the mcdowell colony as a playwright uh, and again, I'd, at that point, when I went to McDowell, I'd only been a playwright for a year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, they have this wonderful way of accepting long career playwrights, but also very beginning green playwrights. And uh, that experience was was pretty amazing in terms of giving me confidence. And I got to meet people at different points in their careers and, and started to sort of learn the things that you know I, there was one playwright Christina Ham, who were still friends and she sort of took me aside and was like okay these are the places you want to be sending your plays mm. these are the places you don't want to send your plays and this is why and but she she's so anybody who knows her like she has this lovely soft slow way of talking and explaining why you don't want to do that mm -hmm. <laughs> and, but she she was very generous very very generous and so what she modeled for me was a way to continue being generous and to not treat this as a zero-sum game you know it's not a competition it's like we're all like anytime anybody gets a play produced it's a it's something to celebrate you know it's it's not always going to be your play but like if you can't be happy for other people's success then you're gonna have a miserable time of it really mm -hmm. so I think we all have these little peaks you know these little arcs mm -hmm. and like my friend Jana when she we were in grad school when she wrote Gideon's Knot for our class and then that play took off and she won an award that was handed out at Humana so she and I we went together 
And it was so fun to watch her be celebrated. Mm -hmm. And I was just literally standing to the side taking pictures. And there's it there's just joy in that like anytime like if you were to you know have this amazing production I would be so happy for you so I think Christina gave me the gift at McDowell of of here come on in and and let's share all this knowledge she wasn't competitive uh and and that experience Mm -hmm. with her kind of was like oh yeah this is this is like I can I can I can do this I can be in this world and uh, even though I know nothing at mm. all, I don't even know what I don't know. Um, I can I can belong here in some way. Yeah. When you when you were in D.C. and you started acting and then started writing plays, was did like was your mom part of your life? Did she come to see anything that you did? Like, oh, this is a good question. She did not come to my first play because it was um, a comedy, but it was based on my own life. Mm-hmm. And she read it, and I, I, I remember as I was writing it, I was challenging myself to make sure every single step of the way that I was writing with love and compassion, um, and that I was not throwing anyone un- under the bus, that I was um, you know, not settling scores, which, as we were talking about earlier is Mm -hmm. a very tempting thing to do when you're a writer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, and I let her know, I I gave her the script to read uh, because there's a lot of generational um, material in it. Grandmother of this character, the mother of this character, but it's a comedy, you know, and Carrie Fisher once said that she waited for things to become funny before she wrote about them. And so that's what I did mm. with this play. I was like, I, I was trying to transmute all of this lifetime and generations before me of pain and challenge and and make something that would have meaning for other people. Um, so she couldn't come to that. And I respected that, you know, um, I wasn't trying to trick her into showing up to a play that she didn't know what it was about. She read it and she was like, I can't, I can't come mm. see it. So she doesn't always like my plays not because I mean that's the only autobiographical play I've written although I do return to a lot of mother themes in my plays like I like for a while there every time I started a new play I was like this play is going to be completely different from every other play I've written and then sure enough I'd be like third draft in I'd be like oh man it's another mother play come on you know so uh, I've and even things that are round yeah you know that's that's a play that has two very different mothers in it, but it's not about me anymore so much. It's it's more. A, is it though? Is it? I don't know. Is it <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> Curses. Yeah. When do you feel like? Uh, so I, I I just talked about how like I had this definitive moment where I was forced to admit I was a playwright. Um, did you ever? Did you have a moment like that where you're like, oh yeah, I'm a playwright now? Um, I think it happened pretty quickly. A lot of things happened. So after I went to McDowell, I mean, my first play, this play that my mom didn't come see was in 2005 in the back of a bar in DC, you know, Mm -hmm. because that was just the performance space we had. And so I wasn't really on anybody's radar. And then I got the McDowell Fellowship and I went and all of a sudden that was a thing that people were like, oh, because when another 
organization, you know, when you get an award or you mm-hmm. get some recognition, then people are like, oh, maybe you're doing something that I should know about or pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And then in early 2007, Washington Shakespeare Company had to cancel their production of King Lear because King Lear fell ill and they didn't have understudies. So the artistic director, Christopher Henley, called me on a Friday and said, have you ever thought about adapting The Rape of Lucrece this weekend? (laughs) 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 And I did the thing you do when you're starting out, especially where I said, yes, yes, I can do that. Absolutely. Because I was a poet. I had formal poetry background writing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had this classical acting, you know, blood in my veins. I knew a lot of Shakespeare's works already, like many classical actors. Like I just had had the rhythms and the the way that he used the verse uh, in certain, um, you know, which is what it what it means to do different things with the verse. And so I had this amazing amount of overconfidence. I could totally do this, right? <laughs> yeah. I I'm a writer. I write poetry. I'm a classical actor. This is gonna be so easy. Not well, no, I didn't think it would be easy, but I was like, yes, I can do this. And I just had to put aside what I was doing that I was adapting a narrative poem of William Shakespeare's for the stage in such a short amount of time. And I bought all the junk food I could buy at the Seven Eleven, and I took it home and I just ate and wrote for three days straight we Mm. did a reading i went back and wrote for two more days and it opened like two and a half weeks later what yeah and these actors a lot of whom had been in the version you know the king lear that they were doing they wanted to give them work so they were cast in it so i kind of had actors to write for Mm. but it's not like you know a lot of classical actors they know the canon you know they know they know the plays they kind of already know the monologues this was all new material. This is not like a play that had been done before. So they had to learn. Uh, I wrote it in verse. I bolded my lines so that I could kind of quantify like what was new that I added and what was original text mm-hmm. from the poem. And it was like 60-40, uh, 60 being what I wrote. And it was in verse. And uh, it, it did really well. It got great press. So mm-hmm. that is, I think, so the McDowell Fellowship – and that um, is, I think, what put me on Greg Henry's radar mm-hmm. in terms of, oh, this is the person who maybe should take this playwriting intensive. Mm-hmm. And he um, he brought me in for that. Mm. So that's how I got there. So I think it was more that time period of yeah. those things happened. The mm-hmm. McDowell Fellowship, the Rape of Lucrece, and the um, going to the Kennedy Center intensive made me feel very... Uh, external validation was was what I got from those things. So mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, all right. So it wasn't really a hurdle. It wasn't hard for me to yeah. be like, I, I was like, okay, I, th- I think this is what I do now. Did you, how were you paying bills at the time? <laughs> um, how was I paying bills? I was a Pilates instructor, uh, self-employed. That was super lucrative. Kidding. It was not at all. <laughs> uh, I was teaching for uh, like Woolly Mammoth. Um, um, uh, what was it called? Ensemble Theater Company. Just all of, I was teaching for about six different nonprofits, taking Shakespeare or theater games into schools. Mm-hmm. Um, what else was I doing? Yeah. I was just patching it together. Were you imagining 
like a future or or was it just like project to project just following your impulses yeah well i think you know for for all of the challenges of the first part of my life i think once i kind of figured a few things out and clicked into place that like i'm i'm driving this bus like i've i'm in charge of it i needed to be confident and i needed to um to have goals to have very ambitious goals i always was thinking um you know joseph conrad has this quote that's uh a work that aspires it's going to sound so pretentious but this is this is the answer a work that aspires however humbly to the condition of art should carry its justification in each line so i took that to mean that don't be breezy with your right like revise 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 like try to put forth your very 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 best product so that you're not wasting your time or an audience's time that you are everything is the very very best that you can do so that's what always drove me and I just had this belief that even if I never got anywhere you know made it whatever that is that um, that I would be, that I would feel like I had done my very, very best, that I hadn't, that I had tried, that I had tried as hard as I could to do the best work that I could. And if at the end of the day, if it, it never added up to anything looking like a career of like a well-known playwright, that that's okay because I didn't pull back at all. I didn't sabotage myself. I didn't you know, shortchange the work. Mm-hmm. So that's what led me to like things that are round. I did like 30 revisions and workshopped it for years because I couldn't find that ending and I needed to try so many different ways. And um, that that's what drove me is if I'm going to do it and it's going to be as hard as it is, which I did not realize at the time, uh, how you can be very successful as a playwright and still not make a living that that's mm-hmm. you know that's nobody really tells you that and i remember i was having a conversation with somebody and they're like oh yeah like half of the people who make it are supported either supported by a partner or a family in some way and i was like i did not know that mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's not they don't tell you that so i'm like working full time waking up at 5 a.m to write before work to try to you know get to a workshop to do that you know i'm trying to do it all I'm like why is this so hard and then i was like oh it's not a fair you know not not everybody's coming from the same right set of advantages right well you said early on that you recognize your own privilege mm-hmm. uh but what we learn as playwrights is that uh privilege is not the same from one to another there are multitudes of levels of privilege yeah for folks which is why i've wanted to stay in it because i think you know what i the plays i write are very working class in some ways like all of my characters have jobs you know they they're they're Mm -hmm. they're not just sitting around okay so i don't mean to i sound like i'm throwing shade on other people who write other things this is what i write about are people who are working who are working maybe multiple jobs who are you know denied a promotion at work who are you know kind of pushing along against adversity um you know and i'm kind of losing my 
my train of where I'm going with it. But but it's one of the reasons I stayed in it as long as I have is that, you know, how do I say this? If if I'm not out there writing plays, then we are just going to get the the wealthy living room plays that are boring not- and they're done. I'll say it. <laughs> They've been done. We've seen them a thousand they times. They win prizes. They get done on Broadway. But like, are they teaching us anything new about the human condition? I don't know. You know, it's not the kinds of plays I love. I love play. I want Lucy Thurber. I want, you know, Carrie Bentley Quinn. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we write about working class, you know, people who are struggling to come out from, you know, I mean, you talk to anybody. Addiction has touched so many people in the world. There's there's addiction. There's poverty. There's, um, you know, just so many social challenges. And if we're writing plays that don't acknowledge these struggles then like what what are we doing (laughs) i'm 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 totally with you Uh, i mean your plays you know your plays are very much about i I, do you consider yourself a working class sure themes yeah Yeah, i talk about how my characters are uh, um they aren't at the top of their game or any game and can't get out of their own way and are just trying to struggle through the complexities of of life um and uh, there, I, I, as far as like an aesthetic is concerned, there's nothing more boring to me than lights up on a Manhattan mm-hmm. like sky rise apartment mm-hmm. overlooking the city. Like I, you know what the ending is before it even starts. And yeah, and uh, even if it's a twist, I'm just like, I'm bored. I'm already bored visually. Like yeah. I just like I don't want to. I don't want to be in this world. Um, but I think I don't know. I think we might. You and I. And like Lucy and Carrie, who you mentioned, are folks who probably are um, our own kind. Mm-hmm. And there, are, I think there are folks that um, do want to live in the, like, the world of the wealthy. Like Shakespeare yeah. wrote plays about the power, the rich and powerful, and mm-hmm. people liked to see what that was like, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I used to think that um, I don't know my my personal taste is the taste that everybody should have. And then I was like, I'm just going to apply it to my own pocketbook. And, yeah. and I'm going to know if this is going to be a lights up on a Manhattan high right. rise. And if it is, then I will save my, my money. And then I will go yeah, read one of your plays instead. <laughs> <laughs> well, and like even things that are round, which, um, you know, is a two-hander but it's sort of my response to the dead baby play because dead baby plays win prizes. But I feel like they're such an easy way to write a play because it's just got pathos built in. So uh, the, the concept does so much work for the playwright. And I just wanted to upend that. Um, it's hard to talk about that play because there's a re- such a huge reveal. Yeah, you can't. I was I just thinking about that. You can't yeah. even describe it. I just highly recommend it to anybody who's <laughs> listening to this. And I recommend it whenever I hear somebody who's looking for, and this is going out, I'm saying this to you, listener, <laughs> uh, two-hander. You're looking for, for a well-written two-hander that you haven't already done. Um, and you've already done gruesome playground injuries, <laughs> right? Like you're looking for something new. 
um, things that are around is an astounding play, and you just have to read it to understand what we're talking about. Thank you. And mention Brian's name, and he'll get 10% <laughs> for that. I So the Boston University did a production of it uh, earlier this year, and... Um, I was, I really felt like I had made it because there was then a Reddit thread about my play. I know. That somebody was like, oh my God, I have to talk to somebody about this play. Somebody else who's seen it. And I was like, oh man, I'm done. That's amazing. That's great. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And it's funny. Anybody on, uh, anybody who uses Reddit knows that if there's a Reddit thread Mm -hmm. made about you. Mm-hmm. that's a level i mean i talk about success on this on this podcast all the time i'm <laughs> obsessed with the concept of success that is a level of success yeah, yeah. <laughs> i love it i it's so meaningful sincerely meaningful and the fact that they included my name in the thread because a lot of people don't acknowledge the playwright yeah. um so yeah so we so so we're going back to that 2000 that seminal 2007 Kennedy Center Intensive, where we met. I, so, you know, I've followed your career since then, and we've been we've been friends since then, in and out of like you know closeness. We've fallen mm-hmm. in and out for various for various reasons. Um, but what I do know is that you were in D.C. at the time, and you moved to New York mm-hmm. at some point in the after that, and I can't remember when, and I can't remember. Why? Yeah. So in 2008, I, um, oh gosh, yeah, I'm just thinking of the timing. So it was kind of like still on this on-ramp to being a playwright. Um, but I very quickly realized in D.C. that there were theaters that would, where the artistic director would come see my play, but they weren't going to produce my plays. And I I was self-producing. I, I self-produced at a couple of fringe festivals, and then I had small commissions from small theaters. But if I was going to have a larger audience, um, I needed to... It's not that I thought, oh, I have to go to New York because that's real theater. It was like, I. it, it was kind of a power flex almost. I was like, if I stay in D.C., people are just going to still let me produce my own plays, but I wanted other people to produce my plays. So... I'm, I went from writing and having three plays done a year to having no plays done a year because I moved to New York City and that's a whole different ecosystem and, you know, nobody knew me and it was great. I, I soaked up theater. I saw as much theater as I could and volunteered for theaters and, um, and then I, I had never thought grad school would be a possibility and then they started, Tina Howe started the Hunter MFA in playwriting and uh, Kelly Ray O'Donnell I remember we were were having brunch and she told me about the program she was like there's this MFA program starting up you should apply I was like there is and so like that weekend I I asked for letters of recommendation and I threw my application in and then I got in and and Tina you know only took four of us and we instantly were a very close cohort which I feel very fortunate about because I've definitely heard other grad programs you know, can can have a more competitive vibe, but we're still friends. I mean, Chris Chris Weichel uh, came up last month, and mm-hmm. and uh, we hung out, and so so we're very we were very supportive of each other from the start. So so the timing though was interesting because it was two thousand eight, 
and I'm like, I'm going to move to New York. I don't have a job. I don't have a place to live. I'm just going to do it. And so I went and I lived with a friend of my mom's down in Connecticut. And she was, uh, had a huge home. I mean, I had a whole suite to myself. She had a pool. She had a, you know, driveway a half a mile long kind of thing. And I'm like getting on the train and going to New York and interviewing at temp agencies. And my first temp agency interview was the day Lehman Brothers fell. So September 2008, the house, you know, everything crashed. And I remember the guy was like, uh, lady, I don't even know if I have a job. I cannot help you get a job right now. And so here I am living in Connecticut and I, I can't find work. So and I had a limited amount of savings. So um, eventually through a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, I got an interview for a project management job at NBC. And I had no idea what a project management manager was, but I was like, absolutely, yes, I can do this job. Um, and and I, I basically, I eventually learned it's just a jacked up admin role, basically, mm -hmm. you know, um, but with better pay. And I remember at the interview, I wore my my mom's friend, the woman I was staying with, was an executive with a company, and she gave me this like two thousand dollar suit to wear to my interview, and I asked my new boss I was like great what's the dress code he's like oh what what you're wearing is fine <laughs> I was like okay <laughs> so she gave me a bunch of clothes and it was like it was totally just jeans I mean it was NBC it's a bunch, a bunch of creative people so it was totally you know just yeah hipster normcore whatever um but I lucked in you know I so I lucked into that I networked like crazy but then I obviously I, I lucked into that and I think that when people move to New York they either have an amazing experience or they have a soul-crushing experience like there's no middle ground mm -hmm. in New York City and I had a great experience I mean I got to go to work at 30 Rock every day and do you remember uh I visited you there and we had lunch yeah with Jeffrey Craner. Right. Right, right, right. And this was before either one of us went to grad school. Yeah. Uh, we were both, you know, struggling playwrights. Yeah. And uh, this was Jeffrey Craner of Welcome to Night Vale fame. Yep. Well before mm -hmm. Night Vale was even a fleeting thought. Yep. And the three of us had lunch at 30 Rock. Uh, and we were talking about being writers and, mm -hmm. and trying to be writers and i think i think jeffrey was with the new york new year futurists at yep. the time and um the like one moment that i thought i find this so so funny to think about now uh you had been interviewed by adam simkowitz for his blog <laughs> and you recommended me and i got interviewed on adam's blog and this is before i was a, a writer for like two years at this point it was yeah. barely a writer and, and Jeffrey was like, why can't I get interviewed on that goddamn blog? And and it's so funny to think about now because of all of his unbelievable right. success right. with Night Vale. Yeah. That at that one moment, he was like, I just want to get interviewed on this <laughs> on this playwright blog. Oh, he was bitter about that for a really long time. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure all of his success with Welcome to Night Vale is just a giant fuck you to Adam Simkovich. <laughs> It's so funny. Yeah. It's so funny. No. Um, so, so I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get somewhere mm -hmm. and I, and I, I want you to talk about 
and it's also like we talked about this off mic before I hit record about how I know a lot about you because I've just known you for all these years. But there is a lot that I don't know. And a lot of that I don't know is like that we just never talked about was like, I don't know, motivations, like reasons why. And I like going to Hunter and getting your MFA made perfect sense because I was actually doing that like the same time getting mm-hmm. my MFA in in Los Angeles. And um, but after you finished, I couldn't believe when you told me you were like, I'm moving to Maine <laughs> and I'm keeping my job and I worked out this mm-hmm. whole thing and I'm going to be a playwright yeah. and I'm going to be in Maine. And I was like, cool. Like, I mean, to you, I was like, awesome. In my head, I was like, what? What? Yeah. So, like, I never said to you, I never actually said, like, what? Mm-hmm. So now I'm saying, what? Yeah. Like, how, yeah. like, like, where did this come from? I think it's, am- like, now, like, years later, I'm like, this is amazing. And now I'm actually sitting up here. I never, I don't, I think this is my first time visiting you since you moved up here it's an amazing place and i see the allure but i like it didn't make sense like how did it make sense to you back when you had this idea um well i was i guess i was three or four years into so i worked for nbc for a total of seven years and i think three or four years into it i thought to myself oh wait a minute i have always patched a living together with all this freelance work but here i have worked at NBC for a few years now and that means something if you want to buy a house and having grown up with so much residential instability living in apartments and all that I knew that that was something that I wanted for myself and I'm like I can do this so I was looking outside of the city two and three hours and I thought if I just go five hours I can be in Maine and that was that was it. That was where I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do then because my mom was living up here and I knew it was a place I'd always wanted to find a way to come back to. And my boss was not really happy with me because I sort of jumped the gun. She kind of needed to clear it with HR and her boss. And I was like, yep, I put a deposit on a condo in Maine. I'm going to be working remotely. <laughs> and she was not happy. Um, but it it worked and I was I was very responsible and very good. So I, re- I was remote working from 2012 to 2015. So I graduated with the Hunter MFA 2012. I had been going to school while working full time. And then that's when I was like, OK, I don't want to live in a studio apartment forever. I can now buy a place while I have this job. Let me do this thing. Mm-hmm. And so that was the timing of it was because of that. And, and But when you moved <clears throat> up here what happened to you artistically? Like, did you feel like you were still like an active playwright? Like, did you feel disconnected? No, I felt, cause I was making regular trips to New York. Uh, I would either fly or, or take the train. And um, I had to be in New York for work anyway. And then um, I still would go and see theater. You know, I had friends who were having shows that I would make, my tra- basically based my work travel plans around shows I wanted to see. So I was still very, you know, and, and the, I was really active at the Lark. They were doing a lot of workshops of my plays and I was in monthly meeting of the minds. And so I would come every month anyway to New York. So I didn't really feel like I left, you know, I still felt, felt very, very connected. Um, and it wasn't until around 
2018 mm-hmm. when um when I just started to well I I wasn't going to New York as much and then um and then I had a uh, brain injury. Mhm. <laughs> Segway. <laughs> yeah. Uh I don't know how do we talk about it? How I do you talk know. about your brain injury? It's it's weird and hard to talk about and it's it's a jolt like that. You know, it's like how do you I mean, you know, may, you may have had a lovely intro that you were getting ready to roll out into it. I don't know if I if I cut that off. How do you do? No, I, I'm literally asking, like, how yeah. do you start talking about a thing like that? Yeah, it's um, for a long time. I, I still don't really know how to talk about it, but I can talk about it now in a way that I couldn't the first few years because I had some cognitive challenges. So I had a very hard time articulating what was going on for me other than to say something is really, really wrong. Um, but I looked fine. Uh, I didn't have like any slurred speech or a limp or, you know, any sort of physical indication that I wasn't doing okay. So I just was very confused all the time and lost. And I would smile and nod while I wasn't actually understanding what people were saying. Um, I found it profoundly isolating. So, um, yeah. So, and then last year, can you, can I interrupt? I'm sorry. Uh, I want to give some context. Can you talk about what exactly happened Mm -hmm. to you? Yeah. Um, I was at a friend's house and there was somebody on the roof doing repairs and we were on the other side of the house. Like the ladder was set up completely on the opposite side of the house. So it wasn't the feeling of, Oh, I'm doing something risky by standing near this ladder. Um, And then I heard a clatter and a yell and I knew that there was something, you know, you could hear something was sliding down the roof towards us. And I was worried for my friend because they were crouched over. They were like weeding or something. And I was standing a few feet away. And before I could say anything, you know, I just was worried for this person. But before I could even say anything, this object, uh, it was a pair of tin snips, hit me in the head uh luckily not the pointy end um but it was a it was a heavy duty basically it's a pair of shears that cuts metal so it's kind of small but very heavy and so I got hit on the head and um you know I I have like this very specific visceral memory of it I won't walk you through all of those little nuances but um I didn't there was no blood I did not black out. Um, I didn't understand something was wrong until like I tried to sleep that night and I was like nauseous if I laid down, but then I had a headache if I sat up and the next day um, at breakfast, I was like, oh, this is really good. What is this? And my friend said, it's scrambled eggs. Mm. And we both looked at each other and I was like, oh, shit what's wrong? So Mm. it was like a Sunday and I called the doctors, you know, on call line and they said, well, you've probably had a concussion. You know, if, if symptoms A, B, C, D crop up, go to the emergency room. Otherwise you can see your primary care on business hours on Monday. And, uh, and that was four and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what happened. We, we were you and I were kind of like in this time period in and out of 
communication. Mm-hmm. So I remember I remember this happening and kind of watching it as from a distance, mm-hmm. like not being present. And I've always felt like really terrible about that because no. when somebody goes through something terrible and traumatic, like you want to be there. And I felt like I felt like emotionally distant and geographically distant. And uh, and so, yeah, so we like the every conversation, not every conversation, but the few conversations we had following this moment, like you, I remember you just trying to to sort of like describe like, listen, I'm having some memory problems. I may not remember the last time we spoke and and you were kind of providing a little context uh, to sort of like make it easy on me. And I'm assuming that this is sort of like the way you were communicating with folks in your life. Just sort of like, I don't, I may, did we talk six months ago? Like, yeah. And not remember. And, um, I felt like I had no, uh, I didn't know how, like, I didn't know what you needed from a friend in order to like, know help communicate or just or just be like i didn't know how to be there without physically like being there nobody knows yeah nobody knows i didn't know i didn't know what to ask for i didn't know anything was wrong with me because that's the nature of a brain injury i Mm -hmm. was having i had a couple of seizure like events they're not sure what they were uh that summer um i remember distinctly at Christmas time that year, so we're still in 2018, and I felt like a champ because I finally could get to the grocery store without using GPS. Um, and I thought I was better. A month later, I started teaching a playwriting class, and I couldn't finish a sentence. And I'd all—I mean, I'd been teaching playwriting for over a decade, and I had my syllabi for all sorts of different scenarios, and I had you know, just my way. And I could write a note, a page of notes and riff on that for three hours. And it was great. And I couldn't finish a sentence. And I didn't even understand what was wrong. I was like, it took me a good week to be like, I think, I think maybe I have some problems because of my brain injury. But I didn't know it. And that's, that's the the thing. You thought you healed? Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm so much better because I was. That's the scary part. That's the scary part. So then I'm like, oh, I need to I need to talk to the neurologist again because they were like, you know, they don't really know how the brain heals. And they'll tell you all these things like, oh, after three months, if you're not better, I don't know, shrug. Uh, We don't really know what to do. And then, uh, you know, after a year, you're about as good as you'll ever be. Oh, oh, after two years, you're about as good as you'll ever be. So nobody knows. And um, so I reached out and I got referred for neuropsych evaluation where they you three hours or so and they run you through all sorts of tests where they can quantify your abilities in all these different cognitive areas. And it very clearly showed like there were, you know, it was like 90, 90 percentile in all of this functioning. And then a few markers were like 16th percentile you know, 23rd percentile, and it was in the areas of working memory, which is kind of the area I used to write plays. You know, you're manipulating ideas and timelines and settings and 
Uh, I had lost the ability to visualize things. I didn't really know that mm -hmm. until I started to get better and, and these abilities would come back and I'd be like, oh, I've missed thinking in metaphor, you know? Mm. But I didn't realize that was why everything was so dull and I was confused all the time. So, um, you had, I, I remember you had a commission <laughs> at the time, yeah. right? Like didn't, oh. didn't the commission come before the accident and you were essentially supposed to be finishing it after yes. the accident? Yes, exactly. So I, I want to real quick though, go back to what you were saying about being a friend, like truly like n nobody knows what to say or do. And I think a lot of friends have the impulse to say, oh, you're fine. I can't tell anything's wrong, you know? And, and I think the only thing I would say is like, if somebody is telling you something's wrong, just listen to them. Like just, just which is what you did, you know, or, you know, that that's the joke we made earlier is like, you could tell me we talked last week and I would have known, I would have been <laughs> like, oh, okay. Uh, Cause I didn't have, I couldn't track things, but um, nobody knows, nobody knows how to respond. I didn't even know how to ask for what I needed. But um, the commission came, so I, you know, I'd been a playwright for about 15 years at that point, and I got a commission from Shadow Catcher, and they were, um, you know, I think, I think any Broadway play has multiple producers, but they had had a hand in quite a few Broadway musicals and plays, and um, their literary manager we had a few meetings and then they awarded me a commission and it was the largest chunk of change I'd ever seen for playwriting and uh, it certainly was not a guarantee of any kind of production but it was leading to all right after your you know however many drafts we'll do a, a reading inviting industry people in and agents and we'll support your career and you're part of our family and you're on our website and um, what do you need and and so I, I was about 20 pages into the draft of this play when I had the injury. And luckily, I had an entire map of the outline. So I had outlined everything, every scene, every character's arc, the beginning, middle, end, all that. So I just kind of kept following that outline, but it was just weirdly hard and I was exhausted because all I wanted to do was sleep so my brain could heal so I turn in the play and then they had a bunch of notes for me which is normal and I heard them all but I didn't understand them I understood the notes to cut things and so I could cut things in the play mm -hmm. but I could not imagine new scenes new dialogue and so the play went from like 120 pages to 66 pages. And I, I and that, that was my very best. You know, we talked earlier, right. but like I always wanted to do my very best and this is a huge opportunity and that's all I could do. And I turned it in and they were very kind, but I'm sure on some level they were like, what the hell mm -hmm. is going on? Mm -hmm. And they released me from the contract. You know, they said, thank you. We're not going to pursue this project. They took me off their website. Mm -hmm. um, and again, they were they were kind. And I felt horrible because, you know, I had taken this chunk of change and I felt like I, I hadn't delivered my very best. I mean, it's the best I could do, but not at all what you want for your first, uh, you know, commercial commission. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that happened. And so did... 
like what was your relationship to your writing at that point were you able to write something new were you able to develop ideas no so like all my life I've always been a person who was like writing on stickies all these ideas and and I just had stopped doing that completely um I got another commission I got a commission from Portland stage to write in the it was the end of 2019 no the end of 2018 so kind of six months after this whole debacle and the artistic director Anita Stewart said you know 2020 is going to be the year of the centennial of women getting the vote. It's also Maine's bicentennial of statehood. We want a Maine playwright to write a play about suffrage, women's suffrage. And I remember being so, so nervous because I wasn't public about the brain injury at all at that mm -hmm. point. Like very few people knew. And I felt like ethically I didn't know that if I could sign this contract saying I could – I didn't think I could do it. And Todd – Bacchus the literary manager he was like you can do this I will be right by your side we will figure it out and I was like okay so I signed it and um you know I'm having meetings about it and I'm just overwhelmed and confused and I um there was a protocol that my doctor started me on that helped my brain heal uh and the first day that we tried that um, I was able to think of the whole plot and story and all the characters of the play. So it was a glimpse of like, oh, this is how my brain used to work. Let me grab this, a pen and like get this stuff down. So I was able to come up with a, an outline for a play, the characters, all of that. I wrote a first draft. It was terribly overwritten though because I... I couldn't hold it all in my head. I couldn't remember that, oh, two pages before, you've actually already said that whole monologue. So it's very overwritten. Mm -hmm. And I was mortified. But people liked it. People liked it a lot. I have no idea why, like, me with a brain injury wrote a play that, like, people really liked. But they did. We did another reading with um, audience later that year. And it was scheduled to be pr produced in 2020. And then the pandemic happened. Oh, right. I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, right. <laughs> 2020 was a big year in it history. Was. I, I know. You tend to forget. Yeah. You tend to forget. But they still did it. They, they did. They still produced it. I remember I remember we talked about it because we kind of we kind of went dark for a while because of your brain injury and my inability to be uh, a present friend. And then we... We reconnected, and I remember you telling me about the process of producing Perseverance. Yeah. Uh, can you describe that? <clears throat> oh, definitely, because, again, like, you know, we get to, so we get to the place where we're going to actually do the play. It's going to be the opening play of the fall 2021, so this was last, you know, less than a year ago, and Jade King Carroll, an amazing director who has a relationship with Portland Stage, she was all scheduled to direct and you know meantime I'm kind of just starting to come out and tell people about the brain injury still I felt you know shame and like uh, it's weird it's people look at you and like but you seem totally fine what are you saying 
and I didn't want people to worry about me, but I started to really get nervous about how is this going to go because I'm not able to revise. I'm not able to look at the pages on a screen. I have trouble with screens. And Todd, you know, again, listened to me like I think I broke down in tears actually because I just like the day before rehearsal, I'm like, I don't know that I can do this. Like, mm -hmm. I can't put my best work forward. And the stage manager, Miles Hatch, came up with. Um, <clears throat> I don't know, everybody, the director, the stage manager, Todd, Anita, everybody just stepped up and Jade um, had actually worked with someone on a creative project who had some similar sudden limitations to how their process normally went. And so what we did was we worked from a hard copy and Jade would have rehearsal and would call me at night and we would go over the hard copy page by page and she said she would say here on page 20 halfway down the page i feel like we're already getting this information over here what do you think can we cut i'm like oh yes absolutely because if she pointed it out mm -hmm. i could see it but i was not able to hold things in my head long enough to do my own normal revision process so she recommended so many, I, I'd say I took 95% of her suggestions. Um, I generally feel if somebody suggests that you cut something, it's, it's lean into that or the question of why is that a suggestion? Because there's something there. I don't, I don't ever want to overwrite something. So miraculously, we came up with a play that I was thrilled with and the actors were so generous. They knew, you know, everybody was just kind of, I, I was very candid about, the situation so everybody knew this is why we're doing this process this way um and it's very humbling to i've never leaned on people as much as i did during that process um because i'd always been the playwright who you know we do rehearsal and then i go off and i work in my room for you know mm, four hours yeah. into the night and bring back fresh pages in the morning and i had never asked for that kind of support i kind of didn't know it was really an option uh, but nobody batted an eye, at least to me. Nobody made me feel like, oh, this is a burden. You know, oh, your pages aren't, you're not following the, you know, page revision protocol. I'm like, I, don't know. I couldn't even work in final draft because I was, I was so brain injured that like I bought three random copies of final draft and couldn't reconcile them on different computers. I couldn't do stuff like mm. that. So there was an intern that they had Macy downloaded final draft. They purchased a copy for her and she made the edits so that they could have that page page version control. Mm -hmm. So that's how that play happens. And I was thrilled with the results. Yeah. And that was, I mean, like a year ago. Yeah. No, last September, October. How is your play? The, playwriting part of you uh changed adjusted since 2018 like where where do you see yourself now as a playwright you know i think what i write next might be a different genre it might be a book it might be a book about my my own experience it might be a fictionalized account of my experience it might be a play about my experience i don't know and i'm um, I am still struggling with screen work, um, although I do I do think there are a lot of workarounds. Like I used the dictation function a lot when I wrote the play, 
because I didn't have to look at a screen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of ways to write a play, but right now there's been, there's so much energy and effort that I'm putting into my continued recovery. Um, I mean, I'm so much better even than like a couple months ago. Like I just keep getting a little bit better, a little bit better. I likely will always have some challenges, but, um, you know, right now I'm not writing anything. I'm teaching playwriting Mm -hmm. and I, you know, there are people who look down on teaching. Oh, you know, those who can't do teach. I'm like, yeah. I mean, you get to a point where I'm like, the next generation of playwrights is coming up and like, what do they have to say? And, you know, maybe that's the natural progression, you know? I think the saying is those with a brain injury (laughs) teach because, because we've all had (laughs) teachers with brain injuries, haven't we? Right. I mean, it's so common. (laughs) It's super common. Yeah. I think I remember we, we talked and it's I'm not trying to make a memory joke, but I really can't Go remember ahead, exactly. But like I think we talked recently about you said you you're not sure you may you you might not even write mm-hmm. a play again. Mm-hmm. Is that where where are you in that? Do you still feel that way? It feels it feels dangerous in a way to say that like career wise because I don't want people to write me off, and I do have a body of work as a playwright that I would love to see. Um, you know, mm-hmm. continue to have a life. There is um, the the rape of Lucrece because I wrote it. It's actually called Lucrece and the Two Janes, and that play because I wrote it in such a compressed timeline. I've always wanted to open that play back up and and get it into a shape where I would really want to send that out into the world. So that's a project I'm talking with somebody about about doing. Um, I always make myself available to people who are doing my plays if I can if I can be helpful in terms of writing I don't I don't know I think writing you know I started writing as a way to figure out a very confusing and chaotic world and I'm not sure that writing serves the same purpose in my life anymore and I think that you know we we live such long lives now and there's this availability of options that we have you know now I'm I'm a dahlia farmer I grow dahlias and that's been a part of my recovery to do something physical and learn a new skill and learn new names of things and uh and screw it up because you know with gardening you're just always getting something wrong but then there's always next season and so you know there's something that's been a useful metaphor for me right now is that I'm I'm kind of rebuilding I'm I'm trying things you know, when I when I would write a play before, I always would write a play thinking, I don't know if I can pull this off. Like, I don't know if I can do this, but I'm going to try. And because the day I started to write a play where I think I know all the answers is the day I'm writing a really shitty play, right? Mm. So I'm always taking a mad swipe at something that's out of reach, that feels out of reach. And right now, being a a farmer <laughs> feels a little out of reach. I didn't grow up that way. I don't know these things. I'm learning as I go. Um, and it, it might not work, but it's bringing me joy. It's bringing me meaning. It's bringing other people joy. People are really excited about my flowers. And, you know, we live in such a um, competitive capitalist society that, you know, we want to progress in our in a certain career or a certain path and 
I have I have had to remove that pressure from myself because I don't have that ability. I have different abilities, but I don't have access to the same way my brain worked before this. And um, it sort of remains to be seen. I don't know. I don't know if I can if I can write a play the way I did before, but maybe there's a different way to write it. Maybe there's, you know, I never really did devised work. Maybe there's a collaborative way that I would love, but I don't, I don't know. So I have a lot of unanswered questions that are, you know, I think that's always good to have unanswered questions. Thank you so, 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 so much to Callie for sharing your story and being such a generous and patient friend. Visit her website, CallieKimble.com, to read more about her work and learn what she's got going on. The subtext is brought to you by American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. Thank you to Rob Weiner-Kent, Editor-in-Chief of American Theatre. This episode was produced by me, and edited by associate producer K.J. Jarbo. Music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. The theme song for the subtext is High by International Pen Pal. If you want to reach out to us, send an email to thesubtextpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voice message by calling 505-302-1235. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is Let You Be Mine by Samantha Marchand. I am fascinated by this immersive play and badly want to see it.